Welcome to the Study of Purpose. Thanks for joining us for another episode. This is your host, Riley Kuffner, reporting to you from Santa Monica, California, alongside my co-host, Aaron Feigelman. Aaron, how's it going today? Splendid. It's been a great morning so far. Took a jog, and, and now I'm here, so it's going to be better. Excellent. Yeah, it's, it's cooling down now, so we're, we're getting ready for, for the winter months to come. Um, definitely feeling it cooling down a bit in, in Los Angeles, I'm sure up in the Bay Area too. Um, but we're really excited to have uh, a very cool guest on the show today. Um, it's Dr. John Collins, who uh, was born and raised in the United Kingdom and has a background in physics and mathematics with a PhD in nuclear physics and microelectronics. John focuses his time now on disruptive, uh, disruptive technologies and innovations uh, as a consultant and also a professor of intellectual property at Cambridge. He is the commercial director of Simbi City at Imperial College and also an advisor to many biotech and artificial intelligence startups. So John, thank you so much for coming on today and talking to us about the study of purpose. You're welcome. And we always like to start the podcast uh, by going back to the really the beginning and hearing about your roots. So can you tell us where exactly you were born and a little bit about your experiences growing up? So um, I was born and raised in London, in the East End, um, in pretty much poverty, actually. Um, my family wasn't particularly ever wealthy and um, uh, my father and mum were very, very young when they had me. So it was very interesting um, from that point of view, very rich culturally. And my dad was the first person out of all the families to go to university. And I was the second person to go to university. So that was really interesting. And we moved around the country because he was an educationist. And um, I, I was always very interested in lots of things. So I, I had loads of hobbies. It was always good fun to have loads and loads of hobbies. And I did an audit of my hobbies a, a couple of months ago, actually. Um, and I had 33 hobbies between the ages of 11 and uh, 19. Uh, and they were all fairly serious and deep. Yeah, they went from everything from jewelry, stone polishing, gliding, electronics. I built my own oscilloscope. I built my oscilloscope so I could freak. I don't know if you probably don't know what freaking is. Years and years ago, when tone phones were first introduced, you used to be able to whistle down a phone uh, and open up all the relays to give you free phone calls. It was called freaking, and it was at 2600 hertz, 2600.00 hertz. It had to be a really clean signal. So I built an oscilloscope so I could test my signal generator so that I could freak, which meant I could hack, and you could do in those days was um, just getting free phone calls. But when you got dial-up, um, it was really cool because you could actually start to get free uh, access to other people on what was the very early days of the internet. I mean, this was a long time ago. And yeah, programming, I started programming on a PDP-10 in, what, 1972? because my dad had access to one who's an educationist. For my first degree, I did physics, maths and psychology because my dad was an educational psychologist, but I'd grown up with psychologists uh, and they, they were really interesting, cool people. And in fact, um, my dad's best friend was a psychologist in um, who specialized in space sickness for NASA. But 
more importantly, his wife was a sex therapist and she was uh, Scandinavian, really beautiful. And you can just imagine a teenage boy uh, sitting at dinner, at, you know, the dinner table, hearing all these amazing stories. I had to study psychology. Um, also, there were, you know, there weren't very many interesting people on uh, geophysics and uh, astrophysics uh, and no women, of course, because in those days, you know, just, it just wasn't the thing to do. But there were lots of very interesting people and women, uh, and very interesting women on the psychology degree. So I, I did that. I went on, I did my, my PhD in Birmingham, uh, and it was really interesting because it was for the nuclear power industry. And uh, actually it was a way of, in real time, detecting uh, radiation in power plants, nuclear power plants, so that you didn't get overexposed and not be able to work for the rest of the year uh, or ever again, or worse, become ill because of exposure to radiation. And that was really successful. After that, I went and worked on some various other things about developing the gas flow sensor for British Gas for the, um, for the smart meter in the UK. Uh, I left that project after a couple of years. It was very successful, but they didn't choose my device. I'd, I'd won a competition with British Gas where I was one of the five competition winners to design and develop the sensor. Uh, but they chose some seriously well-known professor's ridiculous device that didn't actually work in the end. Um, <laughs> mine is in 20 million Chinese homes still, which is really, really cool. But the, the, the more interesting bit of my entire career was when I was headhunted to go and work for De Beers Diamonds, an Anglo-American mining corporation. And I was headhunted to, to develop from scratch um, a potentially disruptive technology that was literally going to rock the diamond world. And I, I, I use that pun intentionally because the project was to develop a technology that could make man-made or lab-grown diamonds indistinguishable from natural diamonds. And you will see they're on the market now. I did that for 12 years. It was extremely successful. So I developed that entire technology, low pressure, um, gaseous te based technology to make man-made diamonds. And that was thrilling because that enabled me to have lots and lots of hobbies while I was doing it. Because um, you know, I was fairly independent. I worked with the main board of De Beers and um, I was just given a lot of money in a laboratory and told to go and play, you know, and uh, experiments. You know, ex experiments are interesting because experiments are play with boundaries. So you start stretching the boundaries and the edges all the way out there, you're just playing. And some of the best science comes from playing. Breaking stuff is quite useful if you're breaking it with a purpose. You know, you're seeing how far something will accelerate or just how much thrust you can get out of a jet engine. You have to take it to destruction because that's where you start to learn, you know, pushing the boundaries at the edges, walking a tightrope. And that, that was such good fun. And I got to do all sorts of stuff. And because I was, um, you know, I'd done this, I started becoming a troubleshooter for Anglo-American. And that was some fantastic projects, you know, all around the world. It also gave me the chance to actually develop another material that doesn't exist in nature, which was electrically conducting, but uh, thermally and thermally conducting. Pure, pure diamond so you could actually cut and shape this stuff 
in the same way as you cut and shape polystyrene with a hot wire, except for this is um, electric discharge machining. So you get all interesting shapes on the edge of the diamond, which was polycrystalline. Uh, so you could start to make interesting shapes of cutting tools that were thermally stable. And uh, you couldn't normally do that with pure diamond. There are all sorts of problems with the, the other forms of diamond compacts in terms of their, their lifetime. And that sort of thing gave you the opportunity to produce shaped edged flooring that doesn't let water in. So, you know, you get this hardwood flooring. Well, that's only there because of this diamond that I produced in large quantities in big sheets. Um, that can cut it. The sale that can cut it and cut these uh -huh. weird shapes. But it was such good fun. Uh, some of the best times. Uh, after that, you know, I, um, I traded in air miles for uh, that I'd been using as a form of contraception for another couple of children and that was really good fun and uh, brought those up I left I left the beers because the traveling got a bit much but uh, I was traveling 97 percent of my time I've run a trade trade association for machine tools and opened offices in San Paolo Bangalore um, Shanghai we had one in Beijing already but most the most fun was in Yekaterinburg in Western Siberia absolutely stunning um, I worked for government uh, for two years determining which technologies government should invest in and uh, develop a sort of attractiveness index and that is where the whole role in uh, biotechnology and synthetic biology came about um, because that was one of the, I, I believed and now know it was the most hotly tipped new technology to, uh, to progress. And the UK has a fantastic landscape of people. Uh, you know, there are 30, 33 universities that are all focusing in their biotech departments on synthetic biology, this, this engineering of biology to make useful stuff and do useful things to feed us, heal us, fuel us, and most importantly, imperatively, actually, to sustain us. Um, and uh, so that's where my whole realm into synthetic biology came. And along the way, I mean, I've done lots of other things. I teach intellectual property at Cambridge Judge Business School for entrepreneurs. And it's brought me into contact with some fascinating and interesting people. So that, in a very, very, very large nutshell, is um, and lengthy, is pretty much how things have progressed. Looking back, everything has been connected. Everything connects to everything else. It is a complex system. I think we all exist in complex systems. It's just some of us don't recognize the sort of multi-axial, multi-dimensional approach that we've had. And of course, it's dynamic. It's moving through time. So it's constantly changing shape and form. And you're constantly putting new nodes in, which you're going to harmonize resonate harmoniously with other parts and that's a great way to be if you ask me <laughs> yeah well that's, that's a really good background and there's there's so many different components there um but i can definitely recognize you know some common themes that bring you from one thing to another and so my main question about it is is just where your burning drive of, of curiosity comes from. Um, because it seems like that is definitely something that propels you from all of your 30 different hobbies as a kid 
to these different explorations and, and playing, you know, where is, what is really the driving force there? Um, can you trace it back to something? Yeah, um, I can. It's, it's quite personal, actually. Um, I'm quite distinctly ADHD. Uh, I, great, I drop the H because I think calling someone hyperactive is rather churlish and childish just because you do a lot of things. But what ADD gives you, it gives me what I call added value. It's, it's like a superpower. Your, your brain is permanently on. It's very hard. It's, it's actually impossible to, to switch it off. Uh, and combined with the sort of hyper-focus that comes with that and hyper-observation, and the ability to create these sort of complex scenarios, it's just, it's a permanently playing. And there's nothing quite like playing all the time. And a thirst for knowledge that can help you play better and play nicer is what comes with it. So that's what drove it. My parents recognized this in me from when I was about 11, apparently, but they never told me. So when I told my mum that I had an official diagnosis a couple of years ago, she said, oh, we've known that for years, Johnny. You know, it, uh, it was quite amusing. Uh, I did ask her why she didn't tell me. She just, just didn't think it was necessary. I seemed happy enough as it is. So that's, that's, mostly, where it, that's mostly where it comes from. But isn't it just thrilling? To f every day is a learning day. You know, you can learn loads every day. Um, Everything is dynamic. And memory, uh, memory is dynamic, and that's marvelous. I mean, there's a whole observation on what happens to memory uh, during this pandemic and separation from people. Yeah, memories, memories are fixed, and we normally fix them against some sort of emotional response. And when that emotional response is taken away, your memories are all over the place. So time seems entirely distorted. It seems distorted to me anyway, because I can get into a state of creative flow while I'm cleaning the floor. You know, it's, um, it's, that's, cleaning is a fabulous way of getting into flow while I, um, and so time is, has always been distorted. Now it's just distorted all over, uh, across another couple of, couple of axes. But that's, you know, unbounded curiosity comes from the want to continually play. That's great, yeah. And, uh, you know, this is actually something that came up in um, another kind of study of ours uh, when Aaron and I were talking to different folks and we recognized there was something that Einstein talked a lot about was this idea of combinatorial play and combining like seemingly unrelated things, you know, together. Can you describe like more, you know, what, what that means for people who might not, um, you know, recognize or do this in their daily life. I understand a little bit because uh, I'm also a scientist at heart. I love just like running different experiments and, you know, examining and seeing what happens. Um, but what's really like the spirit of that play and, and what, is, what does it mean to you? Um, it's all about creativity. So I, I trained as a chef to put myself through university. Um, and that was brilliant because you can be a chef anywhere. And actually, if you like cleaning and you like chefing and you like being around that sort of multifarious environment, you can do anything. You know, I love being a kitchen porter. You get to see everything like that. I love waiting. I love serving people. And I think this sort of combinatorial 
approach is, is the best form of creativity. It's rather like, you know, I go walking every day. I walk a lot in nature or otherwise. And I always find interesting things. Being sort of hyper-observant, uh, you know, I find pennies and coins, but I find all sorts of weird and wonderful things. And, um, you know, tarot cards, poker chips, kids' little toys, and those sorts of things. And what I do, I collect those all up, and I create something from them, an artwork. And that's the, the sort of, much of my creativity comes from found things. So it might be, I was reading this book the other day and I smelt this weird smell and I suddenly thought, hmm, what if we recreate that smell using the techniques and technologies in this book? But that book was all about machine learning. So how do you recreate smells using machine learning? It really is about just picking loads of bits and seeing how they can fit together, how you can make a sort of artwork of found things as your creativity. And that's, that's the way I do it. I think it really comes from being open to new experiences and open to new knowledge and sort of not gleaning knowledge for the sake of it to win arguments, which is what most people do, where they conflate little bits of knowledge that shouldn't be linked together in order to win an argument to show their superiority. It's actually, for my view, far better to gather all this knowledge and then see if you can all pull it together in some interesting way to create something new, even if it's just a fleeting thought around something that can be done on paper but can't exist in reality. Right. Rather than some sort of clear objective, it's more from a place of curiosity, just seeing where it goes. Exactly. Well, that's, I mean, I think that's what create, true creativity is. It's just unbounded play and curiosity. When I used to host dinner parties, um, we got to the stage where one of my dear friends would say, is there nothing you can't cook? You know, we're going to do this ready steady cook as it's called which is where someone brings you some ingredients and you have to make something with it <laughs> fabulous so leo would bring me things like skate wings and celeriac and oh i've got some sour cream for you johnny <laughs> and um, it would be just brilliant because you have to think on the spot you have to get everything going you've got limited things but you might have some things in the pantry so what can you do that's entirely new on the spur of the moment with these found things based on your internal knowledge and what you can collect from knowledge from other people, which in that case was, um, have you ever had you know, celeriac mash, Leo? And you say, no. So I think, ah, right. I've now collected from you that, that piece of information of something you've never had before. So I'm going to make it and you're going to have it. And that's, that, that's the way it really works. It's sort of a ready, steady cook approach to creativity. Wow. I have so many comments, but my first one is what's unique about what I'm hearing from you is one, your, your creativity. And it just seems like your, your interest and your fascination with the, with the, with the world around you. And my first thought is, 
do you ever experience boredom? And if what is what does boredom mean to you when you hear the con this concept of boredom? I really don't know what it is for other people because I've never experienced it myself. It's it's rather like having a brain like a shark. You know, purportedly, when a shark stop shark stops swimming, it dies. Uh, if my brain stops working. Um, I suppose that's what boredom would be, but I think I'd probably die. And I think when it started to slow down or go into that sort of phase, I've had this sort of mental pacemaker that gave me a jolt and said, ah, right, oh, look at that, you know, distraction theory. There'd be something, there's always something there to, to distract you and displace you. So I have no idea what boredom is. I've tried to be bored. I, I tell you, it um, it can be quite exhausting, not stopping, you know. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm really not sure what boredom is. Yeah, boredom is a sort of it's this idea that it's sort of hard to experience because once you start realizing you're bored, then you're no longer you're like now you're thinking about something. You're thinking about boredom, and so it's like, are you really bored? It's just sort of like uh, it's hard to, to really understand if you are bored. But it sounds like with the internet, so much information at your fingertips, the chances of you being bored are even like near zero at this point. <laughs> I think the chances of anybody being bored, if you've got a connection to the internet, then there is no excuse for being bored for anybody. Um, and this is part of the issue, of course. You know, 50% um, of the world is in digital poverty and the other 50% is digitally obese. I mean, um, all those poor people in digital poverty, um, hey, they probably can get bored. And that's, uh, that's a little bit worrying because that leads to personal unrest. I think the people who get bored must be very depressed. You know, they, they must have you know, great difficulty. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that people naturally, um, you know, if, if they're experiencing boredom, they'll go and, and seek something out um, if there's something available to them. And so that's the thing about today's day and age is there's so much content online, you know, in, in these uh, more developed technological nations um, where people can, you know, just totally be consumed by all this information. But then I think the real, you know, trick is it's like um, how, you know, productive is all that content that you're, um, you know, intaking. Because I think that for a person like you, even before all this technology, you still found ways to um, keep yourself engaged in everything that's going on, to question the world. You know, you go on a walk and you're not, you know, you're not bored by a long walk because you're just constantly observing all these things around you. So I think that's like one of the, the traps of, of technology, these technological obese, you know, nations is, um, you know, maybe it's a, it's a crutch for boredom because boredom can be good. You know, boredom can force you to think uh, outside the box and become creative. Um, and so we need to be careful that the technology doesn't, uh, doesn't stifle that. And so how have you seen, you know, ways that technology has both, you know, helped um, this creativity and, and ways that it has maybe detracted from it? Well, let's, let's look at the detractions, first of all. I think there's a major one in that, in that we have abdicated a lot of our thinking and memory to gadgets so you know years ago people used to have a pocket diary in which they would write their appointments and then write telephone numbers and they'd have to open it up and look at it and because they've written it they'd probably remember it a little bit better 
and because they had a visual sight of it without I mean, anywhere you know you could be in the middle of the ocean and you could open your your little pocket diary and you could see ah oh, i'm not supposed to be here today i'm supposed to be somewhere else <laughs> right. um, but now we've um we've abdicated all of that thinking and memory to gadgets so you know i have a a, a google calendar everything's in there because it's in there and I know it's in there and it's on my phone, it's on my laptop and it's on my iPad. I, I know that it's there. I know that it's in the cloud. I know that I can access it from any computer. I don't need to carry around this little thing and I don't have to remember it. And so people no longer remember appointments and they forget appointments, even if it's a digital zoom meeting, you know, They've abdicated all of that memory and thinking. And we've done this for so much stuff. I mean, people don't buy books anymore. They get them on their Kindle. So they can't wander along their bookshelves and think, oh, that looks, I haven't read that for ages. Or, you know, I think so-and-so will really enjoy that book. And you take it down. You can't do that on a Kindle. You can only see what's in front of you on that page. So it's, it has reduced the sort of dimensionality of our opportunities to planar as opposed to multi-axial. And so I think that's one of the real downsides is that it's very difficult for people to do anything other than become almost polarized around their information. They can only have this when they've got this uh, and it's just entirely linear so i think it's preventing people from really developing their systems thinking and complex systems thinking uh, i think that's major a major detriment because life is about complex systems and certainly all the challenges that we're facing at the moment is definitely about complex systems thinking and sense making around that but of course, the upside is you've got all this information and you've got all this opportunity and all this wonderful opportunity of communication and the opportunity to collaborate globally, which you really didn't have before. So on the one side, you've got this polarization of information where you're linearly linked just one to one directed and we've abdicated our, a lot of our thinking and memories to that. On the other hand, you've got this fantastic opportunity to expand all of that and become one to many and many to one global collaborations across different time zones and producing a different form of collective. We, we now know from the last six or seven months of being almost exclusively online, that you can actually form pretty good collaborative groups um, when they're entirely disparate around the world and never never even meet. I'm, I'm a member of a, a small group collaborating on a project. We've never met and we're never likely to meet. And it's really interesting because it's working exceptionally well. And I think that's one of the, the wonders of this modern age is that as much as the downsides and there are some serious downsides yeah it goes both ways pros and cons we couldn't have this conversation right now if it wasn't for it exactly right. <laughs> but we also have to look at the 
the unintended consequences of our actions. We've become addicted to electricity. It's not oil. Uh, data is the new plastic. It definitely is. You know, for, for every Instagram photo that I take, uh, saw on my phone, manipulate and everything else, I take an awful lot, actually. Um, far too many. <laughs> and post on Instagram. That whole process and the capture and story, storage manipulation stored for a hundred years on probably two or three servers around the world uses the equivalent resource and energy to make a 330 milliliter plastic bottle. Now just think, 65 billion Instagram posts a day. Wow, 100 years, yeah. a billion plastic bottles <laughs> right. and resource use. We have to understand better the incredible impact on the environment and the, our ecologies, all different sorts of ecologies, our ecologies of mind, as well as our ecologies of the planet, of this incredible opportunity to create data. There is a sea, there's a, there's a cosmos of data and we're, we're producing more cosmoses of data year on year than is at all necessary. Unfortunately, once it's been made and it's being stored, we can't do anything with it. You know, we, we've done it, we've used it. So our, our aim to remove burning fossil fuels is being thwarted by our want to generate more data needing electricity. Um, it's going to become very difficult, especially when the, the predictions at the moment, forecasts at the moment, are that if we can see, continue streaming at the rate we are at the moment, uh, by 2050, it'll be 35% of all the world's electricity will be just out of streaming. Yeah, it's a phenomenal number of box sets, isn't it? I mean... <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the, 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 this is one of the more serious downsides in my view, is that we're faced with this massive environmental challenge and one which we must meet. We need to get to carbon gross zero, not net zero. We don't want big corporations being able to offset because they're wealthy. Uh, we need to stop, we need to degrow. We need to have degrowth uh, and degrowth of our demand of electricity is one of the most important aspects. Yeah. Combined with producing solar punk style technologies that are going to give us electricity from the sun. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, coming back to the plastics analogy, when you're talking about ways to reduce our consumption there, um, well, you know, it's the first step is, is reduction. It's reduce and then reuse and then recycle. Um, but if you start by reducing, then you, you know, can really save a whole lot of effort. Um, so that, that makes a lot of sense. And I actually wasn't even... I didn't know a lot of that stuff that you were talking about and just the energy consumption of the streaming and the data that we're storing. Um, that's really, really fascinating. And you brought this up a couple of times now where you're talking about, um, you know, kind of our, our basic resources um, for people, you know, like electricity. And, um, you know, I'm curious, to tying this back to, you know, the, the purpose of our podcast, really our exploration of purpose um, is... You know, if you found uh, a purpose for for yourself in the world of of pointing these things out and and working towards some of these these challenges, um, you know, have you have you found a purpose in your life? And 
Um, does this play a, a role in that? It, it does. It, it plays a very big role, actually. <clears throat> and um, again, it's a sort of combinatorial thing. It's taken me years, it took me years, to deci decide actually all the things that I was doing that all linked together and enmeshed in one way or another. Really, my purpose became helping other people achieve their purpose. And almost like becoming a monk that had cogitated on all sorts of things for a long time and gained information from all sources, from indigenous peoples, from other beings, you know, all those sorts of things to bring together so that they could act as an elder and pass that on to anyone who wanted to receive it. So I mentor a lot of people and I, I, I talk with a lot of people um, and we tease out and we develop. And it's a lot connected with networking and having a network. Your network is your net worth. Um, very, very, very important. And um, you have to make it net worthy as well, which is, important too. So my, my purpose is helping others achieve their purpose. And if I can't help them achieve their purpose on my own, I have sought and know enough other people that can come to the party. Because this is a, everything around achieving one's purpose in life is collaborative. You know, it, it's not something that's to be done on its own or alone and in developing that sense of purpose recognizing how my purpose is impacting the world in other words you know if i if i determined that um my purpose was to create the ultimately efficient electric engine there's some real downsides to that you know we suddenly need batteries. We suddenly need all sorts of materials uh, that aren't necessarily the best things to extract. We suddenly need an awful lot more extraction. We suddenly need an awful lot more growth when actually what we want to become is, is, is to degrow an awful lot of things um, and to become less extractive and everything that's associated with that and have fun at the same time. <laughs> you have to have a little bit of fun in there. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> it all, all has to be fun. If it isn't fun, what are you doing? Right. So since you're so purpose focused, I mean, your, your purpose is literally based on spreading and discovering others purpose. Something that I've been thinking about recently, you know, during like last couple of weeks, I hadn't actually thought of this, when I, when we started this podcast and I was thinking like, and is having purpose a privilege? Um, can people who are from unprivileged backgrounds, I mean, let's say like in abject poverty, is that, is, is that even a concept? I wonder. And, and for us to have a purpose, is it like, a, is it a privilege? What do you think? It's a privilege to be alive. It's the privilege to have our existence on a planet such as this. It's a privilege to be able to look at this night sky. I mean, there are certain things that are privileges that are above and beyond what should be a privileged commons. There are some things 
that should be common to all of us are commons of privilege. And then there's other things where, yeah, I'm immensely privileged because I'm sitting in a warm sitting room with loads of art around me, some of mine, I've got a whole sofa full of cushions, I've got a computer in front of me, you know, it's an immense privilege. Is purpose a privilege? Well, I suppose it is a privilege to be able to fulfill one's purpose. But if one's purpose is to help one's family move out of abject poverty by doing anything that's you know, ethically right or morally right, then I don't think that's a privilege. I think that's a right. I think we have a right to be privileged to be able to fulfill our purpose, no matter what that is. Yeah, it's all relative. Hmm. Well, it's, it's rather like money. If money enables you to move out of poverty into existence, it's done a fabulous thing. So you give someone a thousand pounds, a thousand dollars, and that is life changing to them. That's a fabulous thing. You know, that's really, really important. But if you give a millionaire a thousand dollars, you probably wouldn't, wouldn't even notice it hasn't done anything it hasn't had good effect and i think we really need to understand where to have the best impact for people yeah no i think that makes that makes a lot of sense and i think that concept of purpose being um a right is is a really cool idea i think that it is like if someone is able to figure out what their purpose is I think that not everybody is able to do that. Um, not always, you know, fault of their circumstances. It, you know, just sometimes it just doesn't work out. So I think that you are fortunate if you're able to, um, you know, discover what your purpose is. Um, yeah. However, I think that everyone should have the ability, you know, to to do that. And um, it's one of those things where, um, you know, even no matter what your circumstance is someone can find a role and a purpose for themselves. Um, so I really think that's that's a cool idea. And so to talk about this some more, because I know that you mentor a lot of people and, and talk about these ideas, for those listening to the podcast that are thinking about their own um, purpose, their own their roles in life, um, where do you uh, start this exploration? Do you have any advice for them about where to um, begin thinking about their purpose and, and what to explore to learn about that? It's fascinating, isn't it? Because I think if you set out to find your purpose, you're never going to find it. It could well be that what you find is, ah, my purpose is to set out finding my purpose. And it goes into that sort of circular loop where actually it's, um, it's not about the destination. It truly is about the journey. And I think what I do to encourage the people that I speak to when they're considering, you know, who am I, what am I here for, is actually to take an audit, take stock, walk around your sort of house of thinking and understand who the authentic you is, you know, who the real you is, what you most cherish, what you most love, who you most cherish and love, 
and um, all of those aspects that make up make us humans uh, and make us want to um, have mutuality with other people and explore that because I think one's determination or understanding of one's own purpose comes from knowing who you are and knowing who you are with respect to everybody around you and that way you know it it certainly means that you can start to shift who you are one can start to evolve and change we should all be continually changing i think the people who can't find their purpose in fact don't even know that they want to find their purpose are the people who are static in life they're not changing enough and that's down to that you know that that's that is you know everyone should be given the opportunity and perhaps capability to find their purpose but not everyone is going to want to it makes sense yeah and so it's rather than looking you know out there for your purpose it's really starting within yourself In here. Um, yeah it, yeah and then drawing some connections to what to what is around you that's um, it um, understanding what makes your inner tuning for resonate cool yeah no that, that's really fascinating um well thanks for diving you know into, into all that stuff on on purpose and so you know one thing that we were talking about earlier that i was um curious about because i'm i'm still learning about this stuff is the synthetic biology work that you're doing now um because you came from a you know physics background and you know doing all of your work on diamonds and it seems like synthetic biology is a little bit different from that but what really drew you to synthetic biology and you know what is that work that you're doing now um i'd really like to learn some more about it what we do at simbi city is um create new companies that uh, use this thing called synthetic biology uh to solve big challenges and those big challenges might be better ways of making palm oil or new formulations of drugs uh, or um, ways of editing one's genes to remove diseases which could be will be exceptionally useful in the future but if we wheel, wheel back a little bit to what synthetic biology is it's it's what i it's really the engineering of biology um, as i say to make useful things and do useful stuff to heal us feed us fuel us and uh, imperatively to sustain us um, so that we can actually start being less extractive uh, and using more of the things around us that we have created and then have to bury or burn or whatever and it comes down to the idea that we can actually describe biology digitally now and uh, years ago we used to have cassette tapes magnetic tape that you used to be able to put a piece of music on and then chop it up and edit it and move bits around well because we can describe biology digitally we can use the same sorts of thinking and philosophy to both understand what the biology is the understand the design blueprints dna in particular a lot better and then start to edit it play around with it um, 
in order to do different things with it. And for the last 100, 150 years, we've done stuff chemically. We've had some really large extractive processes and um, created using vast amounts of energy and resource, some very interesting materials such as plastics and fabrics, uh, you know, synthetic fabrics and fuels and medicines and flavorings and colorings and you name it, nearly everything that we have around us has been through extractive and chemical based technologies. Now synthetic biology, which is relatively young, it's, I, I would say it's 20 years old, um, based around our ability to understand DNA a lot better and to digitize, understand how it can be digitized, um, brings us the opportunity to start using biology in the same way um, and far less extractive, far better energetically, so we're using less energy and far better environmentally. And I came to this because I like this genre called solar punk, um, uh, uh, a people powered by the planet, a planet powered by the sun is what I describe it as. Um, and if you look at most biology, most biology is powered by the sun. It's the ultimate, solar punk is the ultimate in engineered biology. And if, if we look at the one true common that we have is the sun. I mean, it's true common to everybody. You can't say that about pretty much anything else. You, you know, maybe you can about the night sky, but yeah, not everyone can see it. Um, certainly in London, we rarely see it. I know people have never seen stars, you know. It's terrible. Yeah. Sad. So of course, same in here in Los Angeles. Can't see very many stars. Yeah. yeah. So and so I came across this synthetic biology when I was doing the first work uh, for government in 2010, uh, and I said, hmm. "This is this is the technology of the future. We need to do this, and we've got everything here in the UK to enable us to do it really, really well. We're second in the world to the states." Wow. At the moment. And we have hundreds of companies uh, that have been started up. And what we do at Simply City is, is um, find the great research that can be commercialized and do a full assessment. And then we give a little bit of funding to produce a demonstrator and then we help them get more funding. And I've, over the last six years started, I think it's 27 or helped start 27 new startups. They're all still going. Some of them are doing exceptionally well onto their Series B investments. Uh, and they're all doing useful stuff. Everything from water purification to remove nasty carcinogens through to using AI to determine new protein structures or new medicines. It's huge range. And the move from physics to biotech is not as uncommon as you might think. The philosophy around a lot of the complex systems thinking of, of physics actually lead, lends itself very nicely to a lot of biological processes. And uh, it was actually um, Irving Schrodinger, the, the physicist, who in the uh, late 1950s, I think it was 1956, proposed uh, the whole idea that DNA might be a, a crystalline structure 
and might have a, a different sort of regularity because DNA had been known for a long time. And also that we might be able to engineer this in the same way as we engineer chemistry. So synthetic biology actually has its roots in, in physics and computing as well. A lot of the early computing that was developed. That makes sense to a critical. certain degree. Yeah, it's kind of like these tools were available and then unlocked new possibilities. And uh, this wasn't necessarily something that you were planning, but you you found it because of the, the potential, you know, of the, of the technology. Yeah, one of the really interesting things that, you know, thoughts that I had a while ago was just looking at our universe and the difference that would, you know, what's different about our planet versus, you know, all these other planets out there. Um, and the real asset that we have is, is life. It is biology. Um, so there's some pretty incredible things that you can do with it. And I know that, Aaron, I mean, you're working on uh, kind of a palm oil alternative right now yourself and found synthetic biology along the way in that exploration too, right? Yeah, I've, I've learned a lot about it this year just because it wasn't something that I was very familiar with. Although my brother's actually a synthetic biology, like PhD. Uh, I'd never really questioned him about it though. Um, I just learned about it just, yeah, I'm just amazed by the potential and, and how it's, and, and how, you know, especially these applications involving brewing and, uh, you know, the yeast yeah. is just incredible. How you can engineer yeast to produce so many things. Absolutely. Cells as factories. Right. It's just, it's, it's, I mean, I tell, I, I tell people and I tell my friends and, and family about, you know, you, you know, you can take this yeast and engineer it and it's just, they just don't get it. It's just like, how? It doesn't seem real. Um, well, biology is like that though. It's really, really <laughs> difficult to, to describe and explain because we all know it works. I mean, we were all made exactly the same way using ingredients that differ by a minuscule amount. Yeah, look how different we are. I mean, that doesn't make sense to most people. You look at a field of grass and you think, oh, it's a field of grass. Then you look at the individual blades of grass and they're all grass, but they're all different. But they're all sort of the same. You know, so they have the same blueprint, but it's a bit stretchy and the boundaries aren't quite right. So biology is, uh, is just nonsensical to most people. And the idea that you then take something that's nonsensical and make it sense-driven through being able to engineer it so everything's the same that's a really hard concept for most people and then actually how you do it i mean i talk about digital biology as if it's something you can produce on a computer it's still loads of wet lab stuff you know lots and lots of experiments and of course automation is lending itself with machine learning to being able to run lots of experiments at once because when you think about the experiment of creating humans in the way that we do and we propagate, we've got 7 billion experiments. Right. You know, and every one Evolution. Is different. Right. Yeah, so imagine then trying to do that in a lab so, so that everyone's the same. I mean, that's a, that's a real mind twister. <laughs> right. I, I found it really interesting when learning about artificial intelligence and, and that concept of deep learning. And it is kind of like simulating evolution in a way, um, just trying a whole bunch of things and making small like modulations to them. Um, and so, you know, I'm curious, where where do you see things going from here? Uh, with synthetic biology, with, with your own work in synthetic biology? Uh, what do you think the future holds for it? Well, it's... Um 
it's such early days. I think there's a tremendous future for all technologies actually out there. Um, with synthetic biology, we've really got to be careful about what we do with it. Potentially, it can do all sorts of fantastic things to improve quality of life, improve the, the planet, improve pretty much everything, but it could also be used uh, to do things that that aren't really what we need them to do or want them to do. And we don't yet know what the unintended consequences of some of the things that we're doing is. Yeah, it's, um, if you consider deep thinking about time travel, time travel can't exist, okay? You, know, you can't send biological processes backwards. There's no way. Uh, in fact, we, we're all going through entropy anyway. Uh, so, and you can't accelerate entropy. So you can't move forwards and you can't go backwards. There's no way. So time travel is impossible. So with that understanding, but if it were possible, when you look at the unintended consequences of, of time travel, if you go back in time, you have altered time already. And so is that future, you know, the, the future you want? So in, in many similar ways, if you start to, um, experiment using synthetic biology with certain things to produce a different outcome, to design a different outcome, because that's what designers do. They design different outcomes. Um, it might not be the outcome that you expect, and it might have some unintended consequences. So that's why it's so important to look at what we're doing, why we're doing it, and to consider from many points of view, the ethical consequences and the personal morality around developing the technology. And that's why it's so important. And uh, I think most people recognize this, but uh, they're slow on the uptake and are actually doing it. It's, diff it's difficult to accomplish, it seems. Um, it is. You really have to think in advance and kind of lay how do you lay that groundwork, you know, that ethical groundwork? It's, it's very, very complex because one of the aspects of creativity in sciences, in particular in biology, is you don't know what the outcome is going to be. So how can you possibly put in some sort of futurist view if I do this, then that, this will happen. But it's okay with physicality things, physical things, where you know there's a defined output. We have laws, you know, and we have all sorts of rules, and we've made this fantastic description that helps us to forecast what's going to happen in the future um, on a very small scale or on a very large scale. In biology, we don't have that. We just don't know. We don't have a good enough understanding of biological systems and how they interact and how they respond under different circumstances. It's such early days. And you've got to remember, you know, you're looking at something that is in itself, even a cell is an extraordinarily complex system. And like the leaves of grass, every cell is the same but different. They have key characteristics. And so how do you actually know if by doing X to a cell, 
to get why it happens for all of them unless you've done experiments and similarly thinking unless you've done the experiments you can't understand what the range of outcomes can be so from an ethical standpoint you really have to consider early on what could happen what in your wildest dreams could happen um, which involves a great deal of creativity and then you have to be able to triage that and, and work on it to see well rank the risks and also take public opinion into consideration to whether you should even be doing the experiment in the first place yeah it sounds there's some major parallels between this and artificial intelligence and the unknowns of what you know you let the cat you let the cat out of the bag and it's too late you can't do anything about it it's you know the it's propagating throughout our whole network our whole our whole life so it's uncontrollable so i feel like it's a very similar concept and i i imagine they they, they work hand in hand as well like you're applying artificial intelligence proper um processes to this synthetic biology yep exactly that yeah uh the parallels in fact the, pretty much the parallels in all technology ethics are are very close. The thinking has to be very similar. So I actually sit on one of the government's um, UK panels looking at AI ethics, um, especially how we develop an ethics approach in startup companies. So they start thinking about ethics in the first place. Um, and uh, it's surprising what comes out of that and the thinking that one needs is very similar to that in synthetic biology and biotechnology and and various other technologies where ethics is a major concern. And that should really be in all technologies, in all, all life. You know, the way we study and report history has great ethical implications and ethical consequences. I was going to ask, you know, I, when you're working with these scientists who are working on a micro scale, lab scale with a technology, and you go in there and you help them understand the feasibility of scaling it up, commercialization. One, you know, what is that conversation like? Uh, two, is ethics involved? And then uh, three, you know, what percentage, if you were to say like, how, 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 if you were to say like, you know, do you think that most of the, the lab research that's being done right now um, is not being commercialized because it's just under underutilized and uh, there's not enough people like yourself uh, going out there and trying to make it real mm. i think one of the bigger problems is yes there's not enough people who are skilled and experienced at commercializing stuff especially biotechnology um the other issue is is scaling is really really difficult in, bi in biology i mean i mean a crude analogy is it's easy to grow 100,000 tomatoes, they're all about the same size. But it's really difficult to grow a tomato that's 100,000 times the size of the one that you've got. So, you know, mass production on a physical scale is commonplace. You know, we produce a thousand spoons yeah, a minute, it's easy. But we can't produce a spoon that's a thousand times bigger very easily. We need a whole new development of technology. And biology is much the same. There are some processes that are limited by distance. I mean, 
wine vats can only be so big because of the sort of biological activity length without stirring and all sorts of other things to, to catalyze it and to enable it. And that changes the whole process. Fermentation is a really interesting one. You, you, you can only scale to a certain extent. And then there's a cost implication and an equipment implication. You, know, you will have all seen these gigantic um, sites, uh, big chemistry sets, uh, and it's within these big chemistry sets that we run all the biological processes. I mean, a uh, thousand litre fermenter and a 10,000 litre fermenter are entirely different processes. And most lab scale stuff is millilitres to litres. And, you know, and that starts to pose some real problems. Just getting your head around it is quite difficult. And then looking at the energy considerations, I was once told, oh, John, it only takes 0.2 of a watt to make a microgram of this. And you're saying you're going to make uh, a kilogram. So what sort of power do you need? Turned out you need two power stations. Total non sequitur. Yeah. So understanding the supply chain that goes into scaling is a major, major problem. And some things, you know, well, anything works on paper. Absolutely anything but you can create the impossible on paper. And a lot of scaling is done on a spreadsheet on paper to attract investors. But in reality, you know, it just ain't possible. And that's where a lot of companies struggle to fail. They, they, they go struggle and they get to failure. And the amount of money involved, burn rate in biotech is very, very high. For sure. Yeah. Being able to, to find really the customer, you know, too, in order to, yeah. That's another reason why most startups fail because they, they are a solution looking for a problem and right. they haven't done any kind of market, basically a customer discovery program to understand who their customers might be. And a customer is someone who comes back more than once. Otherwise, they're just a lead adopter and, uh, you know, they might only come across your product once and not like it. But they might say, oh, yes, I'd buy this. And then <laughs> it comes to shelf. That's it. Yeah. So, yeah. so how, do you, how do you urge, you know, the people that you advise, you know, uh, to learn about that process in particular? Because that's one that I found, um, you know, when you're a scientist or an engineer, like you said, and, and you're playing and you're trying these different things, you don't know what the outcome is always going to be. And so you follow leads and you create some sort of outcome. And then how do you urge, um, you know, the people that, that you really work with and advise to you know, marry that like kind of step-by-step -step approach of, of building um, with like what really is out there, you know, in the market and what the potential is, because you can't start with that and then you know build up to it. It doesn't quite work that way. Yeah, you can't you can't take it and backslice it. Basically, right? Um, it has to be built from the from the ground up. All projects should be built from the ground up in the same way as you know you're doing anything. Um, you have to do it layer on layer, bit by bit, and step by step, and pull all the information from all the necessary places. So this has been fantastic, and we like to end every uh, podcast with some wild card questions, some things that uh, you know, not totally related, and just kind of fun. Um, so one of the things that I'm curious about is what are, what are your thoughts on extraterrestrial life? What do you what do you believe in? Do you, do you believe there's um, life out there? 
Hmm, fascinating. When I was a kid, one of my hobbies was SETI, you know, searching for extraterrestrial intelligence, which was basically grid computing. So everyone was scanning uh, basically radio waves to, to see if there was something anomalous that came in. I mean, the SETI program, I don't know if it's still going, we've never found anything. Uh, when anybody did find something, it was probably, you know, car engine somewhere wicking out the capacitor. No, so, noise, right? <laughs> oftentimes, there's a lot of stats brought out to say, oh, there must be this or that, or with this number of planets and stars in the, in the cosmos, there, there's every likelihood that there is. I'm not so sure. I don't think stats comes into play. We don't have enough data, for sure. All the data that we do have suggests that there isn't another planet to sustain or create and sustain life like ours. There's not one with the right mix of chemicals and water and balance of sun and dark and opportunities for photosynthesis. But then that comes down to a fairly boring and banal definition of what life is. I think that we might see extraterrestrials are in fact digital beings. And that's, that's my big fear of technology for the future is that we'll get to a point where we digitize ourselves because you know, our biological forms are so useless and so extractive that um, we're just better for the planet if we're digital beings. So I think if you can consider the digital life form, then yeah, definitely somewhere. It all really comes down to whether you believe consciousness is solely a human thing or whether a boulder can have consciousness. I believe it can because everything vibrates. If you consider that vibration, our vibrations create this waveform, this is us. And the reason why we can interact and communicate is because we're all vibrating very closely together. And maybe a boulder is vibrating at such a, a, a frequency that we don't overlap with its consciousness. And so on that basis, yes, there is definitely digital life somewhere, an extraterrestrial I don't know if I call it intelligence. I don't our definition of intelligence will apply to extraterrestrial digital forms, but who knows? That's no, that's fascinating. I really like that perspective and uh, hadn't really fully considered it before. So I'm definitely going to spend some time thinking about that. Um, you know, one other question that I had is, do you have a favorite uh, historical figure or scientist? Um, that really inspired you, um, you know, through their story. One, to, one worth mentioning. <laughs> Obviously, there are probably a, a oh, few. That, have been that is really, really difficult. It's like, um, who would you have at the dinner party from history? You know, this guy. It's take me years. There's a desert island disc sort of thing. Um, Buckminster Fuller. Bucky. You know, the creation of cybernetics. Uh, and all the people that went around him as well. I mean, he was absolutely staggering influence. And another one, James Burke, the TV presenter. Really, really worth listening to his uh, his TV program from the, oh, I know, ages ago, 30 years ago. Really, really interesting stuff. Major influence on me as a child. But Buckminster Fuller, yeah. 
Okay. That's really – yeah, I, I actually just purchased uh, one of Buckminster Fuller's books on Friday. Um, his uh, kind of guide to spaceship Earth. Um, I forget ex- yeah, exactly what it was called. But it was something like that. And, you know, it's all about sustainable technologies. And, yeah, it's fascinating stuff. So I'm, I'm about to dive into it. I'll, I'll have to let you know what I think. You know, I thought you were going to mention – I was curious if you were going to mention uh, him or not. But what you were saying earlier about the whole combinatorial uh, thinking, I – I first heard about this um, kind of thinking through, uh, you know, John, John von Neumann, the mathematician. And what you were saying, when you were saying earlier about, you know, you know, taking walks and looking at you know, inanimate objects and then somehow connecting it to, uh, you know, like mathematics and artificial intelligence. I mean, this is basically what I understand he was, he did. Yeah. Um, Him and Nash. Like he would, yeah. And they would just combine completely different, seemingly completely different, uh, disparate topics and, you know, draw conclusions and just create amazing innovation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that lovely cross. You know, John Nash, genius, and or Neumann. I mean, they were the foundation for machine learning uh, and for blockchain. Yeah, you know, nineteen fifty-three. I think they first talked about blockchain. They didn't call it blockchain, but what it was first is you know, it's not a new thing by any stretch of the imagination. Making cryptocurrencies, the crypto shit, as I call it, um, that's a new funny. Thing. Well, John, thanks so much for, for coming on and talking to us. Um, I know that I learned a, a tremendous amount, and uh, I think that you know all of your you know advice and both kind of the science side and and the personal you know development side of, of navigating this crazy thing we call life will be really uh, beneficial for our listeners as well. Um, so re- really appreciate it, and uh, yeah, time time to wrap up the episode. Thank you. Great questions, and that last one about. Scientists, technologists, I'm going to have to go away and uh, pull books off the shelves and start to <laughs> lay them all out and see how they're all connected. Thank you. No, that's fantastic. Yeah, we're going to, we're going to look into all those and you know keep learning from them. So thank you. And uh, for all those listening, um, we appreciate you chiming in uh, to listen to John Collins. And we look forward to uh, hearing from you next time and talking to you next time on The Study of Purpose. 